Well, what a privilege it is to open God's Word. And when we're talking about keeping our eyes fixed and above the waters, it's about our focus and where our hearts are firmly fixed. And Jesus is our focus. Jesus is our settled waypoint. That's why Peter writes, do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. That's a tremendous encouragement to me. That, that just couple of, uh, the end of one verse and the beginning of another really sets in perspective this moment for us. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Our Father, may that be the prayer of our heart and the expression of our lives as we move forward in these days. And Lord, as we continue on in the journey through the letter that Peter wrote to people in hard times, I pray that you would suit it for our hearts today. I pray that the application would be received by each of us individually, Lord, wherever we are, whatever circumstance we're in, whatever is our situation, may we find comfort in your word today. May we take heart setting apart Christ as Lord. No other lords, Christ as Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's the most wonderful time of the year, is it not? We are, for some of you, if you're not certain, hockey is back. And uh, I, I need to show you my, my Father's Day present that my dear wife got for me. Mike, can you get a tight shot on that, please? So I want the online audience to uh, gaze at this. And in fact, I'm, I'm trying to set a Guinness World Book of Records today for the most angry emojis online. And this could very well do it right here. TJ, you might want to take out your phone right now, get on there and get an angry emoji going. Yeah, there you go. Well, lest I set the wrong tone for God's Word, let's get back to where we are really today. You know, Peter, in, in this last chapter of, of his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, um, Peter really establishes for the congregation, the, the people of God who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, what are the critical things in terms of their behavior going forward in difficult times? And it's interesting that he centers his final sort of salutation, final, final sign-off on relationships, how we navigate uh, the circumstances with each other. And um, we should be at this time and, and, you know, just moving the application right to us right now. We should be cheering for church leaders. We should be cheering for churches. 
We should be cheering for each other, and we should be um, remembering that we are not the enemy, the devil is. And that's really how Peter uh, establishes the, the last chapter sort of giving us all a biblical worldview, making certain that, that we know not a worldly worldview, not a secular worldview, a biblical worldview. I, I got to say, the, the, the great concern on my heart right now during this last five months as we're just watching what's going on is to notice how confused uh, the worldview of Christians is at this moment. We are not demonstrating a thorough biblical worldview. And we're going to have to work on that. That's going to be something that I realize we need to work. We as Calvary need to work on a biblical worldview. So uh, pray about that. We're going to put that in the uh, hopper for uh, concentrated effort. But right now in this chapter, um, hard time relationship management is what Peter deals with. And in particular, let's get good at complying with God's truth, he says. Let's get good at complying with God's truth and resisting the works of the devil instead of the opposite way around. We don't want to get good at complying with the works of the devil and, in fact, uh, um, not good at uh, complying with the Word of God. We want to be the opposite of the things of God. We're to be called to the opposite of that. And there have been some breaches in our solidarity with this principle. We need to be good at complying with the things of God, God's truth, and good at resisting the works of the devil. That's the assignment that Peter gives us here. So having said that, let's look at this chapter. We'll read it, and then um, if you can, let's stand together as we read God's Word today. To the elders among you, I'm 1 Peter chapter 5, and at home, stand up. Let's stand up and read God's Word together. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, and that's Jesus, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, likewise, be subject to elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. 
with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Please be seated. Therefore, Peter wraps up his letter. In fact, uh, although the NIV does not show the word therefore, he does express that word, therefore, in light of Christ's um, declaration of war on sin, as we have read through the text, we need to get good at handling the church Christ loves and the devil whose works Jesus came to destroy. This goes in both directions today. The context, of course, continues to be sin and suffering and judgment, and the church is a particular target. It's critical that we hold together and resist the enemy. That's where we go this morning. So, two major points that I want to look at. Handle the structures within the community with great care and expect a fight with the devil. That's really what we're looking at today. So, let's look at these structures. And the, this, uh, when he talks about elders and then young men and then all of us, he's talking about the church. He's talking about the church gathered. He's talking about the church organized. He's talking about the local church. The local churches that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And he gives instructions about how we're to manage and handle one another, how we're to relate to one another, and how we're to organize ourselves, and how we're to structure ourselves. Uh, I'll try to, to move uh, quickly through here because it would be so easy to get um, to spend lots of time in, in areas. There's just so much to talk about in these. But suffice it to say that in, in, as Peter launches into this section of his letter, he takes himself a, a position of humility. Do you notice what he says here? He says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings. Now, Peter witnessed a lot of things. There's a lot of things that he could have said. I was a witness to the transfiguration. Uh, give me a pat on the back. I was a, I was a witness to the, uh, the, uh, the ascension of Christ. I, I was a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But no, he goes to the, I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, if any of you know anything about the life of Peter, that was not his finest moment. At the moment of Christ's sufferings, Peter caved. And he's writing to people on hard times. He's writing to people who are discouraged. He's writing to people who are afraid. That's why he says, fear, don't, do not fear what they fear. Do not be afraid. They're afraid. And he's reminding everybody, he's within this, this moment of humility, he's taking this moment where he failed Jesus miserably and says, I was a witness of his sufferings. Remember that time? And not only does that stand out in his mind as, as one of the greatest moments of his life because of what Christ did for him. And Christ forgave me. And not only did Christ forgive me, but he gave me a platform of ministry all over again. He made me 
And he doesn't even say this. He could have said, I'm the apostle Peter. Please listen to me. And he says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a, I'm a fellow pastor with all of you other guys. And remember this, I failed Jesus miserably. So if you're discouraged and if you have let the Lord down, there is grace at the cross. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. There is patience with Jesus. And he will restore you and put you back in ministry and love you and care for you. And it's from that context and from that heart that Peter begins to write to them about this. Don't miss this. Thirty-eight years ago, Stuart Briscoe on this text wrote the concerns that were on his heart at the time. And I, I found it incredibly timely and up-to-date. He said, this is addressing sheep who won't flock, members of flocks who won't follow, and shepherds who have lost the nerve to lead. That's good. Now listen to that. Sheep who won't flock, they're private. They're remaining private. They won't flock. Members of flocks who won't follow, and shepherds who have lost the nerve to lead. That speaks to our moment. See, high values to the Lord are structure and not chaos and proper behavior together. So to the elders, now most of you here are not elders, and I realize that. You're like, maybe I should just check out right now. Well, I would recommend you don't. It's written to all of us. It's written to God's, it's written to God's people. We need to know what God has set in place and how to relate to that. So to the elders, he says here, be shepherds of God's flock. If, you know, Peter comes up with, if I could say one thing to the pastors down through the ages, however long there is, I would tell them this, be shepherds. He doesn't tell us to be CEOs. He says, be shepherds. Of all the animals in the animal kingdom that God could have described people, do you notice what he chooses? He chooses sheep. God chooses sheep as the most apt description in the animal kingdom of people. Sheep wander. Sheep find trouble. Sheep follow without thinking. None of these are good things. That's why sheep need shepherds. It's an irreplaceable metaphor in God's Word. 
and it's a glorious metaphor. I am eternally grateful to be called a shepherd because the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord chooses to describe himself, the God of, of the ages, the God, God Almighty chooses to call himself a shepherd and Jesus as the chief shepherd and I consider it a great honor to be called a shepherd under the great shepherd, the Lord. In this text, he tells us that he calls out the elders to be shepherds, which is the word that is translated pastors, to serve as overseers. You see in this very short space that Peter has defined biblically that an elder is a pastor is an overseer, an overseer is a pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor, a pastor is an elder, an overseer is a pastor, a pastor is an overseer. Same office that our world has deconstructed all of this and, and ha has bishops and cardinals and overseers and elders and pastors as all separate offices is a human construct, not a biblical one. God kept it simple. God keeps it simple. That's why in the Baptist tradition, we keep it simple. We don't have bishops and cardinals and moderators, and we have pastors. That's what we have. Pastors are elders. If you're an elder, you're a pastor. If you're a pastor, you have to be an elder. You have to have the qualifications of an elder to be a pastor. That's, that's how the Bible is laid out. That's just an aside for you. But shepherds, and when you talk about shepherds, they are to feed and to lead and to protect and to care. That's what shepherds do. They're not, as I said, CEOs. They're not management. Pastor Kelvin and I had the uh, privilege of sitting in on an excellent leadership Zoom, pastoral leadership Zoom from the U.S. And one of the quotes that was laid out was the concern of the emph shift emphasis in churches to a management administrative methodology style instead of a care, soul care, heart care, protection emphasis. And one writer writes this, what is significant in the shift of this emphasis is the accent fell on a new syllable in the vocabulary of theology. Issues of the heart and soul became secondary to method and administration. Subtle changes can lead to major distortions over time. That's what we're seeing in many, many churches as they continue to grow is the ever-present danger of, of, of CEO style and management style and administration style and method, methodological style, so corporate that staffs are, are disposable and people are just clients. It's not what church is. Church is about shepherds and people and feeding and leading and caring and heart concerns protection. 
do we realize that, that pastors inherit the shepherding function of God that is represented in Jesus? It is God's intention to gather people to shepherd and care. That's God's intention. You understand the world. The, the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. His intention is to gather people that he might shepherd them and then delegates that responsibility to individuals to care for them. It's the nature of God and the gospel are the highest expression of that care. And so as one leader writes, it is possible to be competent in shepherding, possible to be competent in pastoring, but not pleasing to the Lord. It is possible to be faithful, but faithfulness is not sufficient. That's why Peter writes here, um, those who are under your care. By the way, that, that language, under your care, entrusted to you, you have been, you and you online who are part of the Calvary family, you have been intentionally given to a local church under the care of local shepherds, intentionally. You've been, you, you have been entrusted to the care of particular individuals, shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Pastors of local congregations, pastors of local churches are God's purposeful intention for that group of people. There's an ever-present danger with this online world and all that's going on, the TV world before that, of local congregations ignoring their local pastor in favor of some other remote or distant organization. That remote or distant pastor will not be there to watch over you when you go into a bed of affliction. They will not be there at your wedding. They'll not be there at your funeral. They'll not be there when your heart is broken because your child has gone astray. No, God has put together local congregations with pastoral oversight intentionally. This is God's plan. But there's a very particular look to this group of people. Not because you must, but because you are willing. Be willing, not resentful. Motives matter to God. And there are three temptations for ministry leadership that are, are pointed out here. One is to be reluctant or to be resentful. I mean, you know, unless you've done this work, you, you know, every week it rolls around again, you know. You've got to come up with another sermon, and it's, it's weekly preparation. It's congregational sin that you face. There's constantly emails that are chirping. There's resignations. There's biting sheep. There's all kinds of things that are reasons to become reluctant or resentful. There's counseling, and on and on it goes. There is the weight and pressure and burden of, of the care that is necessary. And it is possible to become resentful, but, but that would not be pleasing to God. God wants us to be eager, willing. And, and I, I can tell you that I'm, I'm 
I'm as excited today as I was the first day I stepped into a pulpit. Eager today. I was looking forward to today. Eager to climb those stairs, come up here, get in front of you, open up God's precious truth and deliver it to you, knowing full well this is what your heart needs. This will build your heart. This will care for you. This will feed you as I am called to do. This will strengthen you for the week that lies before you. And will encourage your heart for the challenges and hurts and and harm that, that dogs you from last week. I'm eager to do that. I'm happy to do that. And by the way, we are called to be happy to do this. We're not to be dour people wandering around looking like we lost our last dollar. We are, we are people who are blessed of the Lord. We are people who have, have been given so much. We are people who are entrusted with glory. We are people who will look forward to a, a, a better world coming. We are people who know that we have the presence now of the living God living in our lives, transforming us, changing us, loving us, caring for us. We have a great family of God that, that loves us and cares for us. Wherever we go internationally, the church of God is there. We are to be happy people. There's no reason not to be happy. And that's what God expects. You see, notice that says here, are willing as God wants you to be. I would say, guys, if you can't be willing and you're resentful, get out of ministry as fast as you can. You don't belong. You don't belong. You're not pleasing to God. We're also to be eager and not greedy. You don't do this for money. You do this because you're eager. You do this because, as I said, it, we, are, we are excited about Jesus' gospel truth. We are excited about throwing lifelines to people. We're excited... To, to see the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a life like Junior this morning who climbed into the baptismal tank because he encountered the living truth about Jesus Christ from this church, this place. We're eager about that, eager to serve. The danger if money motivates you, it will ruin you. It will influence it will cause you to influence peddle the truth. It will cause you to say or not to say things so as not to offend your supporters. It will cause you to tamper with the truth, to tickle some ears. And it also says we're to be examples, not lording it over people, not driving, not domineering people, not threats, not intimidation, not power. Not politics. We know in the scriptures that Christians are to obey their leaders. So given that authority, it uh, can be tempting to abuse it. And people have abused it. Hopefully we all remember that the sheep in every congregation belong first of all to the chief shepherd. <laughs> they are his sheep. 
the flock of his pasture, the people that Jesus died for, the people that Jesus loved so much he went to the cross for, they are his people and dare not anyone damage his people. So we should be leading examples. Do what I do from the truth that I teach. There's so much more to say, but I said, as I said to you, we really need to clip our way through this because I really want to get this as a package deal for you today. He moves on from there, and by the way, the chief shepherd appears. He, by the way, will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. But only the shepherds that have done the job well will receive this crown. So I'm kind of a little, as I was reading this and studying this, I was kind of a little intimidated because I'm thinking, y'all are going to join me in heaven someday and you're going to be watching to see if I get this crown. Like, is Rick sporting this crown or not? So I got some work to do. I'll cast it at Jesus' feet as fast as I can or at least say I did. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so let's move on here. To the young men. Um, You know, you can take this translation a couple of ways. In the same way, be submissive to those who are older. So young men, you should respect all those people who are older than you. But it actually is the word for elder. And in context, of course, he's talking about elders. So the idea here is that, that young men in the congregation should submit to the leadership of the elders of the church. And I guess the idea here is that the young men are the hardest to get to submit. Therefore, if they'll submit, everybody will submit. I guess that's what Peter had in mind. Although my experience has not been that young men are like that. But I know in some settings and some other settings in the world that is true. But I have never encountered that in in my ministry, to be honest. I've found young men to be eager to serve the Lord, eager to respond to church leadership, Um, And, uh, you know, truth of the matter is, from my perspective, it's usually the spiritually immature who disrespect authority in the church. It's not an age-related thing. But Peter has obviously encountered it as an age thing. To everyone, and I want to spend some time here because this is all of us, to all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Can you just for a second pause and just imagine what the church would be like if we were all like that? If we clothed ourselves humility, humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. This is, by the way, is another command to obey. This is not, hey, this would be nice. This would be really wonderful if the church would be like this. This is a command. You see it? Clothe yourselves with humility. Verse 6, humble yourselves as if he hasn't stressed it enough. Humble yourselves is a command. Peter was a very proud man when he first came to know Christ. We know that as we study his life. He was boisterous. He was overconfident spiritually. He even challenged Jesus' theology, if you can imagine. He was aggressive. He crashed at Calvary and many places along the way. He learned about humility the hard way, which is the way most of us learn humility. 
But if you want God on your side, this is what he's saying. If you want God on your side, you better learn to wear humility like you wear clothes. That's why he gives this illustration. Don't leave home without it. Don't leave home without your humility. If you wouldn't leave home without clothes on, don't leave home without humility. Humility literally here means to get low, to view yourself from the ground up and not the top down. Be absolutely realistic about yourself. The most humble people are the most realistic people. When we come to terms with who we really are as it relates to who God is, there is no more proper, in fact, it's obvious. We're realistic, when we become realistic about who we really are and what we have and, and how we, everything that we have has been given to us by God, those people are humble people because we recognize truthful about how God has made us. Proud people, on the other hand, are self-deceived. And from Peter's vantage point, he watched the Son of God grab a towel and clean the feet of dirty disciples. The Son of God. Our God, does ne our God never portrays himself as a proud, arrogant, tyrannic God. He portrays himself as a shepherd, loving, caring, kind, gracious, patient. It was a humble attitude that secured our salvation for us. Philippians 2, Jesus, although equal with God, made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient to God, and in his obedience going to the cross that we might have salvation. This attitude, and it says in that text in Philippians, may the mind of Christ be in you. Let this same attitude be yours so Peter is simply teaching us what he saw in Jesus and what he didn't see in himself. And what he realized is that God opposes the proud. God, let, let that sink in for a moment. God opposes you if you are proud. God is actually working against you if you are proud. In fact, the word here, God opposing the proud, means that God marshals all of his resources against you. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, think about that. Anybody who knows anything about Jonah, what God is capable of doing. When God marshals all of his resources against you, it is not an enviable position to be in. What does humility look like in practical ways? First of all, it puts, it puts others first. It thinks of their desires and needs. The ideas of others are more important and worthy of attention than yours. Do you have to jump into every conversation and be the most important person talking? You may not be humble if you do. 
And here's why God opposes the proud in practical ways. First of all, because it's an incorrect vision of human reality. We have no right to be proud. Humans have no right to be proud. But proud people trust in themselves and seek their own glory. Pride drives us further from God. That's why it says here, He will give nothing to the proud. No grace goes to the proud. But rather, He saves all of His grace for the humble. Why? Because humble people don't think they deserve grace. That's why God heaps it upon them. The humble get grace because they actually believe they don't deserve it. The proud think grandly about their own abilities. The proud feel superior. The proud reject what God says and do their own thing. So he calls out again. If you didn't hear me the first time, I said clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But in case you didn't hear me the first time, I'm going to write it again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves. Believe what God says. Accept where God leads. And trust God with your cares because he cares for you. You know, don't separate this... um, Casting all your cares is, we, 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 you know, we, we have promise box theology. We pull out little verses and we yank them out of context. This casting our anxiety on God is intimately connected to our humility. Don't miss this. This may be the, the golden nugget of this text. The idea here is, the reason many of us think, well, I, I, you know, if I don't take care of myself, no one else is going to take care of me. If I don't, if I don't look out for number one, I, I certainly know that nobody else is going to. Who, Lord, is going to look after me if I really humble myself like you're calling me to here? I'll just get run over. I'll just be a doormat. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go nowhere. And so we, our cares build up on us and our anxiety builds up on us. And this text is saying, no, 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 the opposite is the case. If you will humble yourself before God and trust Him fully with your life and entrust your life fully to Him, you don't need to be anxious anymore. You, you don't need to worry about your cares because he gives grace to the humble. He gives you what you don't deserve but you desperately need. This literally says, throw yourself... Burden God with you. That's what it literally says. Don't carry your burdens. Don't carry your anxiety. Literally, take your burdened self and throw it on God because He cares for you. The God with all the resources of the universe cares for you. That's what this says. And in all of this, expect a fight. Expect a fight with the devil. Be self-controlled and alert because your enemy's prowling around 
looking to devour, particularly near the end. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 3, you can read it yourself. Contextually, he's still talking about the church and large situations where God's will is under attack, but the evil one attacks us personally as well as corporately. And he's saying here, watch out. The enemy's looking to exploit all unguarded moments in your life. He's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, looking for someone who is exploitable, looking for someone who is not casting their cares on God but is acting proudly, is not entrusting themselves to God. And the word here, watch out, is is Gregorio. Be alert, where we get the name Gregory from. Gregory is alert. Be Gregorio, be alert. No spiritual dopiness, no spiritual drowsiness, no unprepared living. We should carry ourselves every day as if we're walking through a very dangerous place because you are, we are, I am. Every day of our lives is dangerous. You can't have any spiritual dopiness, as I said. If you haven't handled your sword lately, the Word of God, you'll get rusty with it. That's what it means to be spiritually drowsy. If you aren't talking to God, you'll have memory lapses and you'll start relying on human outcomes. And if you're wondering what that looks like in your life to be spiritually drowsy or spiritually dopey or sloppy or not alert, I would suggest it looks like this. You find yourself relenting from obedience for the sake of comfort and convenience. You stop obeying God and you find yourself more and more attracted to comfort and convenience in disobedience toward God. That's spiritual slumber. That's spiritual sloppiness. That's spiritual danger. You're someone that the enemy is prowling around looking to devour. If you, start, if, if you find yourself starting to... to, to uh, Uh, respond to life like an unbeliever in your emotions, in your language, in your actions, in your attitudes, in your relationships or in the pits, I would suggest to you that you are probably in a spiritual slumber. What are you talking like? What are you thinking like? Are, are, you, are you looking in the mirror and saying, I, I can't believe, frankly, I can't believe how much I'm starting to look like an unbeliever in the way I respond, in the way I act, in the way I treat people, in the way my relationships are going? I would submit to you that you are a candidate to be fully devoured by the enemy because the word here, devour, is to totally swallow you up. Satan is looking for people in the church. He's not... By the way, Peter's not talking about the outside world. Satan already has those people. He's talking about the church. He's talking about God's people. Satan is looking to swallow you. This moment, this discombobulated moment we live in is a playground for the enemy, an absolute playground for Satan He is looking to devour believers. He is looking to pick off churches. He's looking to pick off pastors who are spiritually asleep, who are drowsy, who are dopey, who are comfortable and and settling on convenience. 
What does Satan do? What are his devices? He tempts us to sin. Genesis 3, 1 to 6, Luke 22. He accuses us before God and makes us feel insecure. You're, you're no good. God doesn't love you. God doesn't really care for you. If you don't look after yourself, God's not going to look after you. You better look after number one. That's what Satan does. He will oppose God's will, Matthew 13, Acts 13. He confuses our minds regarding the truth, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Ephesians 2, 2. He incites acts of idolatry and magic, Acts 8, 9 to 11. He demonizes people, Mark 5, 1 to 20. He actually dominates secular society and politics and makes them a tool of sin, Daniel 10, John 8, 1 Thessalonians 2. And how are we supposed to respond? Resist him, verse 9. Standing firm in the faith. Discipleship, not deliverance, discipleship. The hard work. Deliverance is for the lost. Discipleship is for the found. Hard work of standing on the truth and resisting Satan. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We don't have to be devoured by Satan. He is powerful, by the way, and has been given great dominion in this world. But not over Jesus and not over you because Jesus lives in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So resist him. Know what you believe and refuse to compromise truth. That's what Jesus did when he resisted Satan. You don't have to fear the evil one. Continue to pray. Continue to praise. Continue to proclaim the scriptures. Continue to fellowship together. And you will remain strong in the Lord, standing firm in the faith, in the truth. If you get passive, if you get comfortable... If you get convenient, if you get sloppy, if you go to sleep, if you're not alert, he will swallow you. So get up and out of your beds of comfort and passive lethargy and be alert. Resist him because restoration awaits you. For those who have been tormented and hassled, you are called to victory and not to loss. And you are not alone, Peter says. Listen, you think this is strange just happening to you? Your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Anything that we're experiencing here in Canada is multiplied a hundredfold in other places in the world. This is nothing. And what's quite frankly disturbing to me is we're not handling nothing very well. How are we going to handle something if we can't handle nothing. Restoration awaits us sooner or later. Jesus has called you to come close forever. And anything you have lost for his sake will be more than restored. Maybe not here, but there for sure. Any injustice will be righted. Any privilege will be restored. Any position will be returned. Any responsibility will be rectified. And he closes it out by saying, she who is in Babylon, by the way, just so you know where Babylon is, it was Rome. And it was cryptic talk for government. There's a lot of smarts goes on in the scriptures. 
The book of Revelation is talking about the government in cryptic ways. Rather than just out and say Rome and get himself all beat up, he says Babylon. But he means Rome. That's where Mark was. That's where Peter was. That's where he died two years later. So when you hear me say Babylon to you, what do I mean? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And give everybody a kiss of love, but not during COVID time. (laughs) Which reminds me, some of you have been assembling in the lobby before you leave. Don't do that. Go home. You can't do that right now. I'm sorry. Let's wrap this up. J.I. Packer says it really well as a wrap-up. Appreciate the patience of God. Think how he has borne with you and still bears with you when so much of your life is unworthy of him. And you have so richly deserved his rejection. Learn to marvel at his patience and seek grace to imitate it in your dealings with others and try not to try his patience anymore. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for teaching us about our relationships in the church in hard times. And I pray, oh God, that you would emblazon all over again in our hearts that we should be cheering for our church leaders, cheering for our church, cheering for God's people, and learning to resist the works of the devil that Jesus came to destroy, and not the other way around, O God, I pray. In these days, for your great name's sake, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us again online, and I trust that you'll have a wonderful day wherever you are, and uh, join in again next week. Or if you are out there online and close by here, how about considering coming back here and gathering with us at 300 or 301? We'd love to have you back with us. Have a wonderful day. God bless you.